0: If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you again. You've been good to us, Father, and we're just grateful, Lord, for the new life we have in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we are your children. We thank you, Father, for the hope that we have, uh, the guaranteed future that is ours because of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for our new and accepted family uh, that we become a part of. We thank you, Father, again, for the things you give us to do. We just thank you, Father, for so much. And we ask that you would continue to bless and teach us your word. And we ask, Lord, as we open your word, uh, we pray once again that you would help us to, uh, again, not only be familiar with your word, but, Father, that we would uh, desire to understand it at a very deep level. Uh, that, Lord, it would be uh, become a part of the way that we think and the way that we evaluate situations and issues that it'll become a part of our reasoning processes that father we may make decisions that we make that will glorify you and that we may think your thoughts after you so as always father we ask you bless our time in your word and again we thank you father for preserving it for us and we ask these things in christ's name amen first four verses of acts chapter six uh very familiar says now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenes, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, "It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven good men, seven men of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word." So clearly, as you read through this, the church is facing some, some problems, they've got some conflict that's taking place, and it's brewing in the church. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, many have pointed this out, that when you read through the scripture, uh, even when it comes to uh, godly men and women, God does not pretend that they are perfect, everything is revealed, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, when it comes to the church, same thing, the Holy Spirit doesn't gloss over this issue, and of course we understand that... Uh, not only does the Bible say that wherever two or three are gathered together, that I am in the midst of them. Uh, maybe we need to remember that the reason why God is in the midst of them is because we need a referee at times. Uh, because there's going to be conflict and, we need to, and there's potential for trouble. So trouble comes in the church It has to be faced uh, head on and dealt with and not allowed just to simmer and brew. So we have this story that uh, is laid out before us. First of all, the first problem is they were experiencing a problem that might be good. It was a problem of multiplication. As you read your way through Acts, you know, in the beginning, the Lord is adding to the church, and then the church starts to multiply. Uh, And and we know that at Pentecost, 3,000 men were saved. A short time after that, 5,000 men were saved. Then you add their wives, their children, maybe other family members, and the church is growing by leaps and bounds. When we get to Acts chapter 5, uh, some believe that there were at least 20,000 people in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Some say there may have been as many as 50,000. That's a big church. (laughs) <laughs> just in case you were, you know, not real clear on that. We call a megachurch, a church that's got 1,500. Uh, if a church has 10,000, that's colossal. And they had a minimum of 20,000. So it's just amazing uh, to, think, uh, to think about it in those terms. So with this problem of multiplication, we have the other problem, which is there's a problem of murmuring. Uh, there were two main classes of people in the early church, most of them uh, being believers. They were Jewish. Uh, you have the Aramaic-speaking Jews. They were native to Israel. Then there were the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews. They came back from various parts of the world. Uh, the Hellenists were Jews uh, that had absorbed some of the Greek culture uh, and traditions from where they had lived. And so these groups, they're different. And because they're different, there is some friction that's between them. Uh, we need to keep in mind that when we come across people that are different from us, sometimes there's friction. we got to work through it. Uh, we, we may have to change. It may have to be compromised. Or has to, something has to take place uh, to deal with, with those issues. When Acts tells us that they were murmuring, uh, when you study the words that are used for that, basically the, it refers to secret debate. So they were kind of whispering among each other and kind of debating the issue. Uh, you know, kind of complaining, yeah, they're forgetting to, to feed us. And then, you know, people start laying out the facts, why well, this happened yesterday. And, you know, they did this, this, and this, and this, and they just walked on by. And then today, and, you know, kind of goes on as far as those types of things go. So when you read through Acts again, even though we're only here on chapter 6, Satan had already tried to pretty much destroy the church, or at least stir some trouble up in, it in a couple of ways. We know that persecution started pretty early, and we see that recorded in Acts chapter 4 as well as in Acts chapter 5. And then he tries to introduce sin in the church, which you also have in Acts 5. We have a couple of people who are lying to the Holy Spirit. Those attacks fail. Uh, basically, the church continues to grow. and In fact, maybe some even say that it grew faster when those things took place. And so it seems that Satan is trying a new tactic, and he wants to attack it from within. If he can divide the people, then he's going to cripple the church. And of course, we know that's the same today. Uh, If the devil can't infiltrate and attack us from outside, rest assured that he will try to do it from within. He's always trying to do that. He wants to destroy the local church. He wants to cause it to become very, very ineffective. So he's going to do what he can to divide us, no matter what the issue happens to be. And again, we already know that there's no place for unforgiveness, for division, and for trouble in the church. It doesn't mean that we pretend that there's no trouble if there's trouble. That's not the point. The point is to do our best to deal with it, to deal with it as believers, to find out what it is that God would have us to do in trying to handle that. It still happens today uh, in churches. We don't. It seemed there were more of these kinds of stories back in the 70s and 80s. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure that it's actually happening more often, but there are famous stories from the past where, you know, a church is, uh, they're renovating or they're building and, and they're getting a new carpet And there's a division between the color of the carpet. One group wants one color, one group wants another color, and for whatever reason, they settle in on what they want. And they begin to think poorly of others who don't like the color they like. Uh, You know, there's uh, one story I heard from a guy who was at a church where this happened, where they were renovating the, the, the interior, and one group wanted blue. Because as you all know, blue represents heaven. Uh, the other group wanted green because you all know that green represents growth. And uh, so they were having this debate and then some individuals said, wait a minute, blue represents heaven. Where do you get that from? And someone kind of shouted out, when you lift your head, the sky is blue. And so then there was a teenager that was there. That's important to note because teenagers can be instantly sarcastic uh, and sometimes uh in a very wise way. So some kids stood up and said, well, when I lift my head at night, the sky's black, so let's have black carpet. (laughs) I think only a few teenagers laughed. No one else did. Uh, But the sad part about that story is in the end, people left the church. Not one or two. About half the church left because they couldn't agree on the color of the carpet. I'm like, forget the carpet. (laughs) You know, whatever you got to do, this is ridiculous. And there's all, there's all kinds of issues like that that have happened uh, in churches. And so um, we, need to, we need to realize that it's not an unusual thing for there to be conflict. Uh, but we do want to make sure that, uh, A, we want to resolve those things. And again, understand that uh, there's just no place for that in the church. The church, where the church needs to thrive is unity. Philippians 1 says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent... I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. One of the things that I can tell you is there has never been an incident in the Christian church in Iraq where the church split over the color of carpet. That's never happened. That it has never happened in a church in Iraq where a church split because some wanted guitars in the service and some didn't. That's never happened. They don't have time for that. They're, they're, they're fighting for their lives. Their lives are at stake. And so that those things are relegated to where they're supposed to be. Absolutely and completely unimportant. And we, and we need to remember that. And there's many other countries we can name uh, where the church just has never, never dealt with those kinds of issues at all. <clears throat> if, there are, if there are divisive people in the church... If they refuse to walk in unity, remember that one of, the, one of our goals as individuals is we, we want to do all we can so that as a body of believers, we're walking together. Really walking together in the gospel uh, is, is what we're striving for. And if people refuse to do that, Romans 16 says this in verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them for those who are such do not serve our lord jesus christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple and so he cuts right to the chase and basically it's it's like we are here together to serve christ that should always be the questions or the question that keeps coming up is what is it that we need to do that we serve Christ? If we're trying to, try to resolve an issue, what is it that's going to best serve Christ? We want to serve Christ and serve his people. And that's what Paul says there in Romans 16. But as we know, as we've already alluded to, there's also the problem of ministry, and that gets down to the crux of the matter. The Greek-speaking widows were not getting their share of the daily food. Now, it wasn't that they're complaining it wasn't equal. They were being at times skipped. And this looks bad. This is in Jerusalem. And those who are basically the locals are getting enough food. And those who aren't, aren't. And there's a problem. And back during that time, when you read through the book of Acts, there were, people, there were people in the church who were selling their houses. They were selling land and giving all of that money to the church so these needs could be met. There was a time of great persecution. Uh, there were those who were unable to work because they had family-owned businesses and people were would... Suddenly, stop visiting your shop, or maybe out of respect for your fa- uh, for your for your parents, because again, in the Jewish community, if you become a believer, uh, like I share with you, which happens in Mauritius uh, with Hindus, is that you're viewed as someone who's betrayed the family. You are a traitor to the family, maybe even a traitor to your people, uh, to your nation, and so there is there are some hardships, especially again the widows, uh, and so. This, you know We have some of these affluent individuals who are, who are giving money, so the problem wasn't a shortage of resources, because they had the resources, it was the way the resources were being disseminated. So as the church grew, uh, the task became pretty large. I remember reading uh, about uh, a church that was in um, Constantinople, and uh, they, had a, they actually had a ledger of the widows, what, what the Bible calls true widows. A true widow is someone who does not have family or doesn't have Christian family to help care for them. And this one church, the, the pastor was John, uh, is it Christostom? Is that how you say it? Anyway, John, they called him Golden Mouth. Good nickname. But anyway, they had 5,000 widows. 5,000. That's just unbelievable that they had taken the responsibility to, to care for. So the apostles were responsible for seeing to it. Uh, that the people, especially the widows, had food and essentials that they needed to live. And again, as the church grew, this task just became overwhelming for the apostles, and so they were missing people, and people weren't getting the daily allotments of food. So the Greek-speaking element, they began to complain. The problem was, really, there was too much to do and not enough hours to do it in. And so the result of that was that some things were simply left undone, and it was causing problems in the church. And, pro- and churches can still face that problem today. In fact, they do. Sometimes, in some churches, uh, there's too small a number of people that are trying to, to, to get things done. You know, some churches, it's just, if, if the pastor doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. Uh, in some churches, it's, well, there's a, there's a few people who will take care of it, and, and it's left to them. No one else is, is really going to lift a finger to, uh, to do certain things. And if it's left up to the pastor or to a small group of individuals, that does mean some people are going to be neglected. It's going to happen. And some people are going to be offended. And when that happens, the church is going to have problems and and the church is going to suffer. So the apostles had basically been trying to be everywhere and do everything. And that was an impossible task, obviously. And so they took action. And so the first thing they did is they, they wanted to remind the people of what were the proper priorities. So the first one, as we're very familiar with, is the priority of preaching. Now, again, the word preaching oftentimes is not limited to just what takes place from a pulpit. It has to do with the proclamation, the declaration, the disseminating of the Word of God. And so it says the Apostle said it doesn't make sense for us to put off the necessary preparation for the preaching ministry of the church uh, and wait on tables. So their responsibility was to teach, which means your main responsibility is to prepare to teach uh, and again, that would be to large groups, to small groups, one-on-one, whether it's counseling, whether it's discipleship. And then involved in all of that is prayer, prayer as you read the Word of God, prayer as you try to um, teach the Word of God, and then prayer for those who are having difficulty. So all this is going on. They're having to leave many of those things, there's some of those things undone to take care of waiting on the tables. There's this, there's this struggle between the two. And if they do the one, they neglect the other. If they do this, then they neglect this. And so that's what's taking place. And so these two main things, prayer and preaching, were beginning to to falter. And so they say, we we have to stop doing this. If they spend their time basically handing out groceries, they're not going to have the time necessary to pray and to prepare for the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean that the apostles were above what we might call routine ministry. It doesn't mean that. Uh, It's just simply a matter of priorities for them and for the church. Uh, It's what is most important, you know, what is best and what is good. And certain things still need to be done, but it's the wrong group trying to do it, or whatever the case may happen to be. Uh, The same thing still happens today. Uh, When it comes, I don't know if it takes longer to prepare messages today uh, than it did then. Uh, We we do live in a much more complex world, to a degree. Uh, And I, I just know that it, can, it takes time to to read, to study, to to, to stay at it. In fact, um, what we need to remember. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, John MacArthur, stated, he says that when a man goes to Bible college and seminary, the one thing he should learn is he's now been prepared for a lifetime of study. So it's not like you go there and you study and then you just you you do your thing. You know that that study has to continue and that takes time. Uh, Many men who try to preach uh, accurately the word of God it takes it can take ten to fifteen hours uh, for one sermon. So that just, that, that there's just no way there's no shortcut there when it comes to that. And so as a result of that, there's only so much time. And then you add again counseling, discipleship, praying, and all of that. And uh, he he needs to do that. He has a responsibility to God and to the people to make sure he does that. So the church and the deacons need to do everything they can to ensure. That the pastors, the elders, however the leadership is set up, that, that they have the time they need to pray and to prepare so that they can come prepared. In fact, um, that also then puts a, a, a heavy, I don't want to say a burden, but it does put a heavy responsibility on, on pastors. No matter what it is they have laid out before them, they need to be doing that. They, they need to be spending time in prayer they need to be spending time studying. They need to be spending time disseminating the word of God. That, that's, that's to be their life. And if they don't do that, they're failing in their responsibility to the Lord and, and to their people. And uh, it's one that uh, I do think that more and more pastors need to uh, take to heart. They spend a lot of time maybe doing administrative things. There's a lot of people who can do administrative things a whole lot better than I can. I'm happy to let them do it, and I want them to be able to do that. It also comes down to a trust issue. It Comes down to how we see leadership. Uh, if the pastor wants to be a dictator, then he's not going to have time to prepare. He because ha- that means he, I think it means he doesn't trust people. I'll give you an example. You know, we've done a few building projects, renovation projects around here, and we have a committee of usually men that work on that. I didn't go to any of the meetings. I've got nothing to offer. I have no construction experience. If you want, I can show up and push a wheelbarrow when you need to. I can tear down a wall. I don't think I can build one. Uh, but the point is, is that do I not trust I Trust those guys? I have to. I want to. I can. And things got done really great. A whole lot better than what I would have done. Uh, and uh, the money was used really well. And so it, it comes to that. So, th- And again, it's not done so I can go and, and go home and say, well, they're having a committee meeting, so uh, Oh, that's several nights I get to watch more TV. Uh, or, no, I, I, I need to fill my time up and do the things that I need to do as, as, a, uh, as a as a preacher. So if preaching is to have power, if it's to change lives, if it's to glorify God, then the preacher has to have time uh, that he needs to prepare properly, and that is his priority. But along with that, there's another priority, which is the priority of people. Sermons are important. Bible study is important. Counseling is important. But people are a priority as well. Sermons must be prepared, prayers must be prayed, but people must be ministered to as as well. So it's not just spiritual ministry. This is all kinds of ministry. And obviously here, you know, they're waiting tables. They're making sure they have food so they can live. They have, you know, these widows who are true widows, they don't have any income. There's no safety net out there for them to rely on. If they don't have the church, there's not a lot of options left for these individuals. And one of those is they're not going to be eating much, and people become desperate. And so people are very, very important. And so the church is made up of people, and where people are, there are needs. Where there are needs, they must be met, or people will go elsewhere or do other things. So the early church needed the word of God, and the people also needed ministry. Both were legitimate. Both were legitimate needs. Both were priorities. But again, it was impossible for the apostles to do all that by themselves. And again, the same tension exists today that I've already mentioned. Uh, there is no one man or small group that can do everything. Um, you know, if, if you have a pastor or your elder, they can't visit everyone. Uh, they, they can go to the hospital. They can't go to the hospital and sit there and wait all day. Uh, waiting for someone to get out of surgery, there, you have different people to do that. And that's actually uh, a, uh, uh, I don't want to say a thought, but it's a, a concept. Uh, it was interesting years ago, um, I, I've heard this. There was, a, there was a person who was in the hospital, and the person had been visited by several people in the church throughout the day. Like, I'm talking like 15 different people. And then one of our associate pastors went. And their friend said, well, finally, someone from the church came. <laughs> so did the other 15 people not count? That, that, we're, we're doing what the church is supposed to do. All of us are called to minister to each other. Absolutely. So people from the church have been there all day. He was just another individual from the church who came. I, I will say this is the only, I'm not saying we're the only church that's ever done this. But I have on two separate occasions been asked in a hospital by, I guess it's a head nurse. I don't know. I don't know the difference because they don't have like stripes on their uniforms. But I've been approached by nurses asking us to tell people in the church to stop coming because there's too many people visiting the individual and they need to rest. And I said, oh, okay. I'll do that. <laughs> Which is, that's, a, that's, that's actually kind of cool. Just so many people. So please stop. So the thing is, is that um, we need to make sure that these things get done. So there's too many needs, not enough people to meet those needs. The apostle placed the matter back in the hands of the church. They issued a command and said, you need to choose seven men who would basically be servants of the people. So the church had the responsibility for choosing men who would be their servants in the church. They were to be appointed over this business. That phrase, over this business, has been misunderstood by some. The deacons do not exist as church bosses. In fact, no one is a church boss. I'm not even a church boss. I'm an elder in the church. Even when it comes to preaching and teaching, I'm doing that to serve you. I'm supposed to be teaching you what the Word of God says, not trying to get across my own agenda. My agenda needs to be exactly what the Scriptures is. So I want us to love each other better. I want us to have deeper and richer fellowship. I want us to encourage each other and strengthen each other. That's not my agenda. That's God's agenda. That's what I want to teach. That's what I want to communicate to you. So... If we're doing our job correctly, that's what's going on. So the the deacons are church bosses. Uh, They're not over the business of the church in that sense. They really have no authority in the church than what they've been given by the church. The church gives them authority to conduct business in this way. So deacons serve at the pleasure of the church. The pastor and the deacons serve at the pleasure of the church. Any deacon, just like any pastor, can be removed from office by the church at any time. So again, deacons are not rulers they're servants, and even elders. Even when it speaks of elders ruling, it's, it's talking about spiritual things. We're not bosses of your personal life. In fact, there was um, some false teaching that was going around uh, back in, I, th- I think it was the 80s. I'm not sure what areas of the country started in, but, but, and it's gone by different names, but there was one that was called a shepherding movement. And in the shepherding movement, what took place was that uh, the, the pastor... Uh, of the church was to basically guide the people in the church in every, every issue of life. And what that turned into is, so if uh, Sean wanted to go buy something simple, like he, he needs a, a new washing machine and dryer at his house, he has to get my permission first. And we'll discuss it. And I'll let him know if I think that's a good idea. Mike Russell wants to get a new refrigerator for his wife. We need to talk, you know, because that may not be really what, that's what it turned into. It was nuts uh, that that took place. So we need to recognize again that that is not what God has called us to do or to be. And so when it comes to to the deacons as well as the elders, they are servants uh, and they are to serve again God and serve the people. So the business that they were placed over really was the business of serving tables. The phrase serving tables uh, is where we get our word deacon from. It means a table waiter or a domestic servant, uh, one who attends to the needs of others. In fact, the literal meaning of the word means to kick up dust. And so it's the image of a, of a servant working so hard and moving so fast, they leave a cloud of dust behind them as they try to get things done. So a deacon then is a man who is chosen to be a servant of the church and it's to be busy in his service, kicking up dust, meeting the needs of the people. So while the men, so while the men uh, they were told to choose would be servants, the challenge was they had to be special men. It just couldn't be anybody that they had to choose. They had to choose men well. And they had three basic characteristics or three special characteristics. Number one, they were to be good men. They were to be men who had an honest report. Uh, they were men who have experienced something in life, so to speak. It speaks of men who, by their testimony and lifestyle, have earned the love and respect of the church. So again, it doesn't mean this individual is a great evangelist. That's not what this is talking about. Or this person's led 10 people or 20 people to Christ. They may have led 20 people to Christ. Terrific. They may have only led 5 to Christ. The, the point is, is that these are men who, by a consistent example, basically they serve others. They're serving God and serving others. They're, they're, they're seeking to live a life that pleases the Lord. There are men, obviously, who are saved. There are men who live a Christian life. Uh, These are men that you can't point an accusing finger at. Again, it doesn't mean that they're perfect because no one's perfect. Uh, Even in their failure, it's how they handle that failure. There are good men who are worthy of respect. They are to be men of personal integrity. They are to have an unblemished character. They must be men who avoid evil and seek the well-being of others. And a lot of times we hear, if you were to listen to some of our deacons meetings, you will hear that coming out. There's a concern among the men. They're concerned about the well-being of other people, and they want to make sure that, that needs are being met. These men are also not only to be good men, they're to be godly men. They're to be full of the Holy Spirit. They're to be spirit-filled, spirit-controlled. They're to be men who are in tune with God, led by God. Churches will regret selecting men who are not full of the Holy Spirit to be deacons. A man who is filled with his own ways will be a thorn in the side of the church for as long as he serves. And you may have heard stories before of churches where <clears throat> the deacons are just, it's, it's, a, it's a problem in a lot of different ways. There's jokes among pastors at times. Uh, you know, a pastor may say, well, i got a deacons meeting tonight. The other pastors go, oh, oh, And they're just to be honest. I, I even had guy, one guy do that to me once. I was talking to a guy, and I said, "Well, I got a deacons' meeting tonight. I can't meet with you." And, and he said, "You got a what meeting?" I said, "A deacons' meeting." He goes, "Oh man, man, I feel really sorry for you." I said, "Why?" I said, "Our meetings are good." And this is what he said: "They are." I said, "Yeah." I said, "Now I don't think I get everything I want. That doesn't happen." I said, "But it's it's a good meeting." And we and we kind of talked about it. He goes, "Man, I wish I had that." How did you do that? I said, "Well, I didn't do that. <laughs> Let the Lord take care of that." But it comes to the congregation again, not selecting men because they're popular, uh, not selecting you know men for this reason or that reason, but because of what the Scripture says. So they're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, be godly men. they will also be gifted men in the sense that they are to be full of wisdom. They're able to make sensible decisions. They're not influenced by personal opinions or by their own personal opinions, so to speak. Uh, they're not influenced by family concerns or emotions. They're able to make their decisions based on what does the scripture say. There must be men who can move beyond their own boundaries and see the needs of others. When the deacons meet, they must always seek what is best for the whole church. And I can tell you that one of the great blessings, because I've been here almost 18 years now, is the deacons' meetings, that's what they've been. It's It's been fantastic. Uh, not perfect. We, have we had disagreements? Yeah, we have. There's, there have been problems? Well, you already know that, because where two or three or more are gathered, there are problems therein. So, yeah, there's there's been those things. However, what I can tell you is that it's the overarching principle has always been what is really best for the church. And that's, you can't ask for more than that. So they faced the church. The church got together, they made their selections, and these men were presented to the apostles for their final approval. And the church prospered. And I won't go into that because I've covered that before, and we'll revisit that another day. But the church prospered as a church because of the ministry of these men. Even to the point that there's a, a certain group of men that it's rare out of that group for there to be conversions to Christ because of what it would mean and there was a group of men coming out of a particular group that were being saved as a result of what the church was able to do. You have people who were beginning to be able to pray and spend the time, the time they needed in prayer. They were able to spend time in preparing the word of God, time in discipleship and the, and the ministry of the word of God, and the Lord blessed because they were doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And so that's, that's what we need. So we need, we need uh, men who will take up the mantle of service in these days, men who are good, men who are godly, men who are gifted to meet the needs of the church. We need servants. We don't need men who want power, prestige, and position. We do not need men who are just looking for a title and for an office. And so then when we uh, look at uh, recommendations, when, we, when the church at time, when we vote uh, to bring men in to serve as deacons, that's the kind of men we're looking for, and that's the kind of men that we get. And if a man isn't that way, I think a man may not last real long in, in our church as a deacon because he's going to be kind of like the lone voice. If he's got his own agenda, if he's looking for power, it'll stand out. It'll look really odd uh, if that's happening. And so uh, um, we've been really blessed in that, in that sense. So what we do then is when a man is becoming a deacon for the first time, we ordain them. The idea is that we are, we are, as a church body, officially placing that person to the side and stating that that person is, has been selected, that person is approved to serve the church as a deacon. And so we have one individual this year uh, who is going to be a deacon for the first time.